Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida True Crime podcast. We start this special Christmas edition of Full Rigor with a Florida true crime that happened in the 1950s. Harry and Harriet Moore were murdered on Christmas Day, which was their silver wedding anniversary in 1951, when a bomb set by the Ku Klux Klan blew up their home in Mims, Florida. Both were civil rights activists. Harry Moore died on the way to the hospital. Harriet died nine days later, leaving behind two daughters, Evangeline and Annie Rosalia. Hear now the ballad of Harry T. Moore by the Chicago Children's Choir. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. The bomb can kill the dreams of old, but freedom never dies. It happened in Florida in the land of flowers, it was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange groves, men of hate carrying dynamite. It was on a Christmas evening. Harriet were pioneer activists and leaders of the early civil rights movement in Mims, Florida, in Brevard County, population about 7,000, according to the 2010 census, so small community near Titusville. The couple became the first martyrs of the movement and members of the NAACP. And then on Christmas night, December 25th, 1951, a bomb planted under the Moore's bedroom floor exploded, blowing their home to pieces and eventually killing the husband and wife. They had just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary earlier that day. Harriet Moore was a sixth grade teacher at George Washington Public School. At that time, most children attended school two months out of the year. That would be white children. The black children of sharecroppers didn't attend school. And the governor at the time, Sidney Katz, was a racist, anti-Semitic governor, said blacks shouldn't go to school because white kids could only go a few months a year. Despite a large migration of blacks who left the state, over two million, Harry Moore stayed. Here's historian Jim Clark, who says Moore's writings are eloquent and that he wasn't afraid of the governor. In fact, he asked him to do things, and he didn't say no, sir, yes, sir, to the white man. There is no indication at any point of any fear by Harry T. Moore. He just simply does not have fear in him. It's the most amazing thing that a black man in the 1940s in the South is willing to go and fight for black rights in an era when doing anything far less could get a black person killed. Others remember Moore as a hero. He was a kind of hero, unsung hero. All of the civil rights movement of Florida stands largely on the shoulders of Harry T. Moore. So somebody had planted a bomb made out of sticks of dynamite underneath the couple's bedroom. Somehow, they had the floor plan of the house. And when that bomb went off, it was after Harriet and Harry had gone to bed. So they were the main target. They survived the blast and were rushed to the nearest hospital that would treat African Americans in Sanford, Florida. The ambulance ride 
over a half hour long. Harry died in the ambulance and his wife, Harriet, lived to see her husband buried before she died nine days later from her injuries. So over the years, a number of motives have been suggested for the Moore's murders, and all of them do share a common theme, retribution against Harry Moore for his civil rights activities. Here's author Ben Green. He was so far ahead of his time. His political organizing was way beyond anything that was happening in the South. It could have changed the state of Florida. It could have changed the civil rights movement. And that's why he was killed. Well, since the night of the explosion in 1951, five separate criminal investigations have been initiated and completed. Keep in mind, there have been no arrests in this case. The first investigation was headed by the FBI, and it began on the night of the explosion, and it concluded in 1955. The second investigation was a joint investigation by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office and Brevard County State's Attorney's Office in 1978. The third investigation took place in 1991 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, known as the FDLE. In 2004, a fourth investigation was commenced by the Florida Attorney General's Office of Civil Rights. And in 2008, the FBI again investigated the more homicides as part of the Department of Justice's cold case initiative. In total, the five criminal investigations revealed evidence implicating four suspects in the bombing. The four suspects were known to be high-ranking members of the Ku Klux Klan in the Central Florida region. The first of the four suspects, Earl Brooklyn, was a Klansman with reputation for being exceedingly violent and was described as a renegade after he was expelled from the clavern of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia for engaging in unsanctioned acts of violence. Brooklyn reportedly was in possession of floor plans of the Moore home and was said to be recruiting volunteers to assist him in the bombing. The second subject, Tillman H. Curley Blevin, was also reported to be a violent member of the Klan and a close friend of Brooklyn. Joseph Cox, another Klansman, was implicated in the bombing by a fellow Klansman, Edward Spivey. Spivey implicated Cox during a deathbed confession in 1978 while he was suffering from the late stages of cancer. Cox had committed suicide in 1952, one day after being confronted by the FBI. The investigation revealed that Harry's civil rights advocacy made him a known target of the Klan. But again, no arrests have ever been made in the case. All four of the subjects are now dead, and the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division closed the file on the federal investigation in 2011. Their murder was the first assassination of any activist to occur during the civil rights movement and the only time that a husband and wife were murdered during the history of the movement. Now, back in the 30s, Harry and Harriet Moore began organizing for the NAACP in Central Florida. They launched a legal struggle that eventually won equal pay for black and white teachers. And in 1941, Harry became president and later executive director of the Florida State NAACP. Under their leadership, the NAACP eventually grew to more than 10,000 members in more than 60 branches across the state of Florida. And in 1944, Thurgood Marshall won Smith v. Allwright in the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that all white primary elections were unconstitutional. So with blacks now allowed to vote in the real elections, the Moors organized the Progressive Voters League of Florida and Harry became its president. Florida's voter registration procedures were not as restrictive as those in neighboring Georgia and Alabama. And within a few years, the Moors managed to register over 100,000 black voters, increasing black registration from 5 percent to 31 percent of those eligible. 
Their slogan was, quote, a voteless citizen is a voiceless citizen, end quote. For years, Harry traveled Florida's muddy back roads and poorly paved highways, building the NAACP, helping blacks register and organizing the Voters League. But in addition to voter registration and education, the Moors investigated lynchings. In 1949, four young black men were accused of raping a white girl in Lake County, north of Orlando, and at that time, a Klan stronghold. Later evidence indicates that a 17-year-old girl had been beaten by her husband and that they concocted a phony rape story to conceal the beating from her parents who had threatened to shoot him if he brutalized her again. Charles Greenlee, who was 16, and a war veteran, Sam Shepard and Walter Irvin were arrested for the supposed rape. The fourth man, Ernest Thomas, managed to flee but was gunned down by a sheriff posse a few days later. A mob of more than 500 white men assembled to lynch the remaining three. And when they couldn't locate the prisoners, they formed a caravan of 200 cars and descended on the black neighborhood of Groveland, where the families of the accused men lived. They shot into their homes and set some on fire. The Florida governor sent the National Guard to restore order in Groveland. Willis McCall, the sheriff of Lake County, was notorious for his brutality against blacks. Year after year, he was re-elected with the support of the citrus growers, who he supplied with cheap chain gang prison labor at harvest time by arresting blacks on trumped-up charges for minor crimes. He also chased any and all union organizers out of the county. The Moors discovered that while in McCall's custody, the three Groveland defendants were brutally beaten and made to stand on broken glass with their hands roped to a pipe over their heads. Despite this torture, they refused to confess to a crime they did not commit. Unable to force a confession, McCall's deputies manufactured enough phony evidence to convince an all-white jury. Shepard and Irvin were sentenced to death. 16-year-old Greenlee was sentenced to prison. Greenlee chose not to appeal out of fear that a new trial would result in a death sentence. Franklin Williams was Shepard and Irvin's NAACP attorney. He appealed their conviction, and it was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1951. At that time, the sheriff, Sheriff McCall, removed the two men from prison. While driving them to Lake County for their new trial, he shot them, killing Shepard and severely wounding Irvin. He claims the two handcuffed and manacled prisoners attacked him while trying to escape. When Irvin recovered enough to speak, he described how McCall pulled his car off the road, dragged the two men out, and began firing. The Moors demanded that McCall be suspended from office and indicted for murder. No charges were ever brought against McCall. Well, the mob attack on Groveland, the original rape trial, the successful appeal and the shootings fanning the flames of racism, Harry Moore was called the most hated black man in Florida. His mother visiting for the holidays voiced concern for more safety. Harry told her, quote, every advancement comes by way of sacrifice. What I am doing is for the benefit of my race, end quote. In 1999, the site of Moore's home in Mims, Florida, where the bombing occurred, became the historical heritage landmark of the state of Florida. Five years later, Brevard County's local government christened the Harry T. Harriet Moore Memorial Park an interpretive center. So at this Christmas time, we remember this very brave couple who said their prayers after celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary on Christmas and went to bed not knowing that someone had placed an improvised bomb made of dynamite underneath their bedroom floorboards. They were mortally wounded and later died, but they will never be forgotten. Here again is the Chicago Children's Choir with the Ballad of Harry T. Moore. So if you see a 
I wish I could say that things have changed in South Florida since that time, but not really. In 1979, right off of Belvedere Road, the Klan held a cross-burning. Greetings to all hydras of realms, plagals of domains, grand titans and furies of provinces, giants, exalted cyclops, and terrors of cantons, and to all citizens of the invisible empire of the Ku Klux Klan. In the name of our valiant and venerated dead, I affectionately greet you. Klansmen, do we believe in our cause? Yes. yes. And then right before our nation's birthday, July 3rd, 1990, a federal judge struck down a town of Palm Beach ordinance that restricted parades and ordered the town to permit up to 450 white-robed members of the Ku Klux Klan to march down exclusive Worth Avenue on July 4th the next day. It wasn't clear whether or not Richard Ford, the self-proclaimed national wizard of the fraternal white knights of the KKK, would hold the march on the national holiday. As it turned out, Ford, who was a retired resident of Lantana, needed more time to plan the event. They finally had it at the end of July. But the district judge rejected arguments by the Palm Beach police chief that the KKK march would endanger public safety by bringing traffic on the narrow island to a standstill. Instead, the judge ruled that the town officials had violated Ford's constitutional rights by denying him the opportunity to express his racist theories and beliefs in public. So the Klan case was filed by the ACLU against Palm Beach after town officials refused to allow Ford and between 100 and 450 Klansmen to march down Worth Avenue to Town Hall on the 4th of July. Some legal observers in South Florida earlier suggested that a ruling in favor of the Klan would trigger a flood of protest march requests from other fringe groups seeking national media exposure by bringing their causes to Palm Beach's fashionable streets. Well, the judge's ruling not only allowed the Klan to march, but it also mandated that they rewrite a 1958 ordinance that town officials have used to block parades that might disrupt traffic. The judge found that the ordinance was unconstitutional because it left parade permits entirely to the discretion of the police chief with no procedure to review the chief's decisions. And the judge noted that Palm Beach permits the barricading of a two-block section of Worth Avenue every December for its annual Christmas tree lighting, which marks the start of the holiday shopping period. And he said, that inasmuch as Worth Avenue is blocked for the Christmas tree lighting, it would be arbitrary and capricious not to block it off on the 4th of July when I assume stores are all closed. The judge dismissed concerns about traffic congestion, even if the Klan sauntered across County Line Road. He said the congestion would be about the same as every time the drawbridge goes up to get on or off of Palm Beach. So eventually, at the end of July, 30 members of the Klan and white racist youth groups marched along Worth Avenue with a thousand spectators and journalists and police watching. Fortunately, there was little violence other than the fact that the Grand Wizard of the Klan was marching down Worth Avenue. Things were pretty quiet, but the town of Palm Beach spent thousands of dollars on security. And this parade reveals a lot about the Klan's methods and the way small towns deal with extremist groups. The Klan plays the law of averages. And it knows 999 people out of 1,000 will reject the Klan. But if they get on television or they get into the media, they will have collectively hundreds of thousands of viewers, listeners, and readers. And that's what happened on that day they marched down Worth Avenue. No, they didn't wear designer sheets. Brother, now you are appointed Grand Dragon for the realm of Kentucky, Tennessee. (laughs) 
So they ask a high-profile town like Palm Beach for a parade permit. When the town refuses, they call the ACLU to defend their First Amendment rights, get a federal judge to rule that the town's parade ordinance is unconstitutional, then demand $53,000 in legal fees and damages from the town. And they held a news conference before the rally. Afterward, they invited reporters to a cross-lighting, which, at the time I worked at Channel 25, the ABC affiliate in West Palm Beach, and I was dating the chief photographer, Sean, and he covered the march down Worth Avenue, and then he did go to the cross-lighting, and he shot that, and he put together a photographer's piece. He used strobe lighting and everything, and... His piece actually won an Emmy. It was the only Emmy ever won in this small market at that time. And he won it for his coverage of the Klan March down Worth Avenue and the cross lighting in the field in Okeechobee. The March down Worth Avenue was one thing, but the cross burning was very chilling and upsetting. But it was something that the people of Palm Beach County needed to see, and they saw it on our news channel. The First Amendment today has been taking some hits, but there's still some white supremacists and Klan members in Florida and around the country. You recall there was the Unite the Right rally in August of 2017. It was a white supremacist and neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the Klan in Florida continues to make news. Three suspected KKK members are in jail tonight in Northeast Florida. These three corrections officers face charges for conspiracy to commit murder. We have team coverage on this elaborate plot to kill a former inmate. Catherine, wow. For a reaction, here's Imperial Wizard Frank. I love every one of you. I'm proud to serve with every one of you. I was asked a question about this situation in Florida. Every organization has bad people. Those those bad people will be removed from our midst. That's what's going on here right now. Those who are not worthy are being cast out. Klan is dismissed until dusk. But in terms of cross burnings and marches down Worth Avenue, we haven't had one since the 90s. Hopefully we won't have another one in the future, especially given what happened in 1951 on Christmas Day to Harry Moore. So from that Christmas tale, I end the Full Rigger podcast with this Christmas horror. A massacre in Covina, Los Angeles suburb, a grisly scene on Christmas Eve 2008. The killer, Bruce Jeffrey Pardo, he showed up at a holiday party. He was wearing a festive Santa Claus costume. The problem was he wasn't invited. In fact, he was out for blood. Pardo opened fire on his ex-wife, Sylvia Pardo, and approximately 25 of her guests, including an 8-year-old girl who answered the door. Before unwrapping a gift he had brought, which turned out to be a homemade flamethrower, he greeted everyone. Because the winter holidays have a strong promotion of being family holidays, murder during this time is often associated with the killer having recently lost a loved one, having anger toward a rejecting former lover or spouse, or being resentful of a family that appears to have it all. That's according to a clinical psychologist. So Pardo's divorce had been finalized a week before, and police speculated that this was the trigger that led to his massacre of nine people, including Sylvia, his ex-wife, and her parents. Pardo carried a plane ticket that pointed to a getaway plan, but ended up taking his own life shortly after the attack. But not before starting a fire that consumed the house. It was ignited by racing fuel, and then it was fed by the festive light in two fireplaces. It took 80 firefighters nearly two hours to extinguish, and many of the victims had to be identified through dental records. 
Nothing says Merry Christmas like an unidentifiable charred body. Psychologists say on Christmas, the psychopathy behind holiday rage and murder is a lack of empathy for the lives of other humans and living things. This is most likely born from a childhood of a murderer who severely neglected or abused psychologically, emotionally, or sexually, and as an adult will unconsciously transfer these feelings and thoughts into rage that ultimately can lead to aggression and possibly murder. Well, here's hoping that your holidays are full of love and cheer. I'm Karen Curtis. That's it for this episode of Full Rigor. Thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives. Peloton, let's go! This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes. From running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton. Motivation that moves you.